Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I'm one of your hosts, Phil Liscove. And I am your special guest host, Emily St. James. Sitting in for your normal host, I, I'm gonna, I had a joke and I can't, we're going to circle back to it. It's gonna be great. We're going to put great. it at it's the gonna, end. It's going to be great. Whatever it is, it's going to be wonderful. But with us so good is uh, our writer directors, uh, Harry Alfont and Deborah Kaplan. Thank you so, so much for coming on to talk with us today about Wayne's World, a, uh, a, a pretty seismic comedy from 1992 that um, made a, a pretty staggering amount of money back in the day. But um, I wanted to have you guys on for obvious reasons, which is that you guys are obviously wonderful writer-directors. But I felt like, and we talked about this a little bit before we were on mic, that maybe this was an influential film for you guys, but it seems like maybe it was subconsciously, but possibly not really. Uh, first of all, thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure. Um, we, I do, look, the truth is, because you're, 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 you're linking the DNA to Josie and the Pussycats, mm-hmm. and... I tweeted, it's been so long. I don't really remember talking a lot about Wayne's World when we were talking about Josie. The two references I remember mm-hmm. where we talked about like kind of the tone of like a live action Simpsons episode. This is when like the Simpsons was in its sure. heyday, 2000. Sure. Still is in my house. Um, and, <laughs> and we talked about Fight Club, just kind of the, the satirical oh, wow. nature of you know how Fight Club looked at consumerism and and all of that. You can see the parallels. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're they're, I mean, they're obviously there. So clear. And we talked about Austin Powers in terms of tone, in terms of like the villains sense. and that. Sure. We didn't talk about Wayne's World. I mean, I think the scene that that to me makes the most sense is the, is the uh, product placement product scene. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was just always I don't know. I kind of always remembered that scene, but it wasn't like, hey, let's let's do a movie. That like that scene, but the whole movie. Like I don't remember us ever saying that. Yeah, I mean the the. It's interesting you bring up Fight Club because I do think that Josie and to a certain degree Wayne's World, the meta textuality of of sort of what kind of came in the in the wake of a movie like Wayne's World. Like I watched it, Emily. Have you seen Wayne's World? Right. Or I have a- seen like I this. <laughs> This is like, you know how I never have nostalgia for any of the movies we cover? This one I've seen like seven times. I knew this movie. This movie's in my like lingua franca. I just like have quotes I do from it. I didn't even realize sure. we're from Wayne's World because I probably haven't watched it since I was 16. Right. And it is just, yeah, it, it just watching it was like having a weird like return to my my past like my wife was my wife was quoting every single line because she yeah. like her little brother was peak wayne's world age so like but yeah it it just i really think the way that this used breaks the fourth wall was like just hugely influential for me um yeah i i i i, I love that that kind of stuff there's there's a joke in barbie that feels very wayne's world and how it breaks the fourth wall and that was like my favorite part of the movie so <laughs> which one which was the joke um it's at this is the narration it's when helen mirren pops in over an emotional scene about how beautiful barbie is to make comments about margot robbie directly and i was like ha yes margot robbie is a beautiful human (laughs) it was pretty great i you know i do think that and i'm sure that our listeners will think of some other film and i'm sure there's many films before wayne's world but i do feel like it was pretty groundbreaking in terms of how it it sort of obviously it's it's birth is in sketch comedy so there's a lot of kind of scenes that feel kind of sketchy i guess to some degree or another but it's 
it's not a plotty movie, right? Like it has it has like a, a coat hanger of a plot. And then it's really just almost just a whole bunch of non sequiturs that kind of hint that kind of connect to one another. This is all just to say like this movie shouldn't work. Like on paper, this movie shouldn't work. And we'll talk about the somewhat tumultuous production of this film, which was its own thing. But I do feel like it was pretty groundbreaking in terms of at least for me as a 12-year-old, I felt like I was watching something that kind of changed the way I saw comedy. And I think a generation of writers and directors took a lot of stuff away from it. I mean, as Emily just said, I think that you can see shades of it in Barbie. But I, I guess sort of the the metatextual stuff that you were talking about, like Fight Club is that dialed up to 11, right? And and as the 90s progress, you see more and more of that. And then obviously with your, with your film Josie, that was sort of a way of coming at it as well. Do you think that like on some level, were you guys thinking about that metatext? Was the commentary on sort of the layeredness of, of how all these movies have become so layered and, and do you sort of see what I'm saying? Um, I mean, look, we definitely knew we wanted the movie to have a meta layer. I don't even know if we used the word meta back then. That's how long ago it was. It might not have existed. Yeah, I, don't know anybody, I don't know if anybody called things meta, but we definitely, look, you know, we have the, we have, in my opinion, maybe one too many fourth ball breaks, <laughs> Josie, but, um, but, you know, just the, 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 you know, I'm here because I'm on the comic book, you know, we definitely knew we, in, in the, um, you know, the subliminal messages and all of that, that's, that was, that was fun. You know, and it was, it was really more what do we want to have be kind of fun? What do we think is funny? Um, but that, that was really the driver, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's also, it is funny. And I feel like we'll talk about, I think Barbie is going to come up to some degree or another, just in terms of the IP-ness of everything. Like technically speaking, Wayne's World is IP. It is a sketch that has turned into a movie. And Josie obviously was a comic book and then a, I believe an animated show. Am I making that up? Yeah, no, you're I right. remember yeah. the animated show because I was not a big comics or Archie comics reader. So right. my, when the people oh. when they approached us, <laughs> I was a big comic reader. But when they approached us with Josie, I remembered the uh, the sun, the Saturday morning cartoon. That so was my reference the, point. Pussycat in outer space, wasn't it? Well, first it was Josie and Pussycat. Then it was Josie and Pussycat in outer space. When everything went outer, outer space, yeah, yeah. The, 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 yeah, that's the one I remember. I didn't know. That. I didn't know Josie and Pussycat in outer space. Did you read the comics? I'm assuming I knew you the did. Com- I knew, I like I knew Archie comics. Okay. I I Josie I was like a lot like is less familiar with it was like a tangent but I knew like who they were, you know. Sure. Um yeah, when I uh when they announced the movie in whatever year that was announced, I was like, "Oh, they're making a Josie and the Pussycats movie." And like everyone around me was like, "What?" Cuz like we were all just like too young to know the cartoon, sure. but I like read Archie comics cuz my grandparents had a giant box of them for some reason i don't know nothing about my childhood makes sense let's just move on (laughs) but i but i do think that the you know it's funny because the archie thing i read archie comics as a kid it felt like whenever i was in a supermarket with my mom or whatever i essentially forced her to buy me one um and i remember reading them and josie you know features pretty prominently in them it's it's kind of amazing how long it took for us to get to like Riverdale, for instance, like it's kind of amazing that it took as long as it did, considering how um, huge those comics were. But so you guys rewatched Wayne's World for this podcast, which I am very yes. thankful you took the time to do. Um, how did it how did it speak to you guys in 2023 versus when you saw it in, I guess, 1992? You know, I, 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 
I want to say there was like a large degree of cynicism watching it back because sure. we really were looking actively at the structure. And, um, you know, the first thing we said was like, okay, so what does he want in this movie? Like, I mean, initially it just seems like all he wants is this guitar. And they <laughs> yes. fulfill that want kind of than halfway into the movie yeah. and it's sort of anticlimactic. He just comes in and says, I'm going to buy it today. Yeah. And then I guess he wants the girl. Sure. But then we also could not figure out what Rob Lowe was trying to do for the longest time. We're like, what is his objective? It does not make any sense. Whereas I think, you know, I, how, you know, I'm just going to say how old I am. Like you were yeah. 12. I was 22 when that movie came out. Sure. I think I just, that didn't even occur to me. Like how, okay. but we did. What, when was that when we had that meeting with Mike Myers? We met with Mike Myers. It was a long time ago. I think it may have been pre-Austin Powers. That's how long ago it was. No. I think so. No, 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 no. All right, no. Austin Powers is ninety-eight, right? No, ninety-seven. I think it may have been before that. I don't think I don't think we had done Can't Hardly Wait before that. Mike Myers. He wanted to to remake the Court Jester. Oh, I thought (laughs) it was Walter Mitty. (laughs) We did not meet on Walter Mitty. Maybe no, I'm Harry's the keeper amazing. of the vault. Because it was a, it was a Danny K movie. Yeah. We know it was a Danny K movie. Yeah. I don't remember it being the court jester, but maybe it was. I feel like it was Walter Mitty because that's been in development for a while. But anyway, yeah. So you met with him long... about this, and this is prior to Can't Hardly Wait that you meet with him on this. I, I, I think believe it was, Harry, because... but she says no. It's impossible. Let's just say it was sometime <laughs> twenty plus years ago. Okay. Uh, and he, ex- what was your he explained the real estate of the comedy to us. He's a very serious guy. There were not a lot of laughs in the meeting. And it was, I, I don't remember if he had a board. No, he didn't have a board. Was, the way I remember it, there was like a whiteboard with a map on it. But okay. I think you're thinking board. of him in Glorious Bastards. For purposes um, of the story, there was a whiteboard. So, sure, perfect. But he, Love but, it. But I will say, though, having now had, you know, 20 plus years of experience, he wasn't wrong because his theory of the real estate of comedy was. The first half of the movie, you can just do joke, 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 joke. You can do as many jokes as you want. But the mm-hmm. second half, the story has to take over. Because if you start mm-hmm. doing just like bits to just like do a sidetrack and do just a bit for a bit's sake, the audience is going to get impatient because it's like, let's get back to the story. Okay. And we talked about it because the opening of the movie is just, you know, it's just all bits. I mean, truth, the truth is most of the movie is all bits. Yeah, he didn't yes. quite follow the film's right. role. Like, if you really look at it carefully, like, there are a lot of bits in the back half of the film, too. But when you, a couple minutes into the movie, are doing that Bohemian Rhapsody scene, which is, I think, one of the things people remember most about That's the movie, right. it has no purpose except to get you to the guitar store so he can mm-hmm. say, it will be mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's the thing everybody enjoys the most. I forgot how early that came. I, in it's my like- memory... Yeah. It's the first scene. Essentially, it's the first scene. I'm not sure the it's, credits are done by that point. No, they're not. And I, my memory was that happened midway through. You know, there's story. And then midway through, there was the big Bohemian Rhapsody scene that everybody loved. And I'm like, oh, it's the beginning of the movie. So interesting. It's, it, I don't it's, know. That is actually so interesting. No, it it's absolutely is. I think it's, you know, I have not watched this film in a while. Um, not, I mean, I own it. It's just I hadn't. I, I had an urge to watch it, and then I knew we were going to cover it, so I kind of waited. And... I was, first of all, I couldn't believe how much I know from this movie. Like, it was just, it's hardwired in my brain. But also being critical of it and, like, actually watching it like the four of us did in terms of, you know, uh, what it's trying to do. It's amazing how little it's trying to do. Like, how effortless it is in terms of just kind of just doing a bunch of stuff. There's jokes in it that, I mean, the great Poupon joke 
does not work anymore because no one knows what the fuck it's hey, even that, is, that, that is hilarious yeah the whole burn and Shirley sequence yeah there's jokes in it where you're just like okay I, I imagine that my mom probably saw this film with me and loved the Laverne and Shirley joke like that's a joke literally for the parents I bet the Laverne and Shirley joke because I'm I'm a little older than Deb and sure. so I think the Laverne and Shirley joke killed because it came out of nowhere <laughs> and it was still I mean every single person in the audience that theater yep. that was just in there but I mean I still get nostalgic hearing the song so it just that I'm sure it, it killed um, I mean, I remember, I remember seeing the sketch, the first time seeing the sketch. I was in college, I think, when that started. And I remember being with some friends and it was the last sketch on. It was like the 10 to 1 sketch. They buried it. And we all were, we all were like, okay, what is this? Because this is hilarious. Because it was, so, it seemed so different than anything else that was on the show. And then I think the story is like, and then the next time it was on, it was the first sketch after, you know, the monologue. Because it was so popular and then it took off. But it is it, kind of interesting how, so I, I guess, I mean, from the research that I did, Mike Myers had this idea for a guy who had a cable access television show. Um, and he did not want Dana Carvey in the sketch with him. No, he um, came, he, he had done it before. From what I read, right. he had actually done the character. Like a second city. Yeah, yeah before yeah. he got to SNL. But then the, he did the math of like, well, if you want to get a sketch on, Yep. put the biggest star on the show in it so he created garth and then yeah. that then that was not and resented and it every day it. After. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and you can see in the movie that i mean it's so weird too because i mean I, we looked up there you know dana carvey's you know a decent amount older than mike myers and it's almost like dana carvey's born in 1955 so he's kind of the tail end of the baby boomers sure. mike myers is like early 60s so he's kind of like about gen x it's like they really are kind of different generations you feel Absolutely. that in the comedy um and, and you, it they're siloed off a lot too and yeah. and you which which you don't notice as you're watching the film and they are a great duo right like i would argue they're one of the great duos in terms of you know your bill and ted's your whoever's of that kind of oeuvre and i do think that dana's stuff feels a lot more kind of improvisational and a lot kind of it has a crackle to it whereas i think that the mike myers stuff feels very kind of written and specific and knows what he wants to be doing they're just they're kind of doing different things and yet they complement each other it's not it's when you read about the stuff of whenever dana would do something that improvised improvised something that worked mike would be pissed and would want to cut from the movie like it's it's kind of insane but i mean but i think it also just felt like they were they were struggling to come up with okay what's garth's story gonna be because like when he when he yeah, starts he with like really. he starts MacGyvering stuff together and it yeah. felt like okay what what He's is in this? love with Donna Dixon, right? Yes. Who has maybe one line in the movie? I'm not sure she I, does. I'm not sure she even has a line. Wow, but yeah. she does Carvey say gets really I love you, Garth. I think at yeah, the end she does yeah. say I love you, Garth. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> also, it seems like Dana Carvey gets relegated to sort of a more vintage style of comedy. You know, yes. he's got like the big slapstick bits. There's like a lot of undercranked footage that like. Mm-hmm. Makes, it's so bizarre. I forgot that it was yeah. in there. It's like a Gilligan's Island totally. episode. He's either and, like and, slowed down or sped up. He's yeah. like thrown against walls. It's it's the, the 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 drum solo thing is actually Dana Carvey. He actually knows how to play the drums. Um, it's it's just and it's funny because watching it this time, Garth was kind of the MVP for me this time around. Like his stuff really popped in a way that 
I agree. He has no arc. There's no, he has no mission or any desires, it seems. But I just really kind of, he spoke to me this time. I don't know. Emily, Garth, did he speak to you? Garth is always my fave. He was, <laughs> even as, even as like, a, I mean, as, as a teenager, Garth sure. was, Garth and Cassandra were my favorites sure. as a teenager because Cassandra is so cool and so She's hot. So cool. And I was yeah. like, I should be her. Someday. Yeah. Sure. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, I should suddenly, be in a metal band. Yeah. The MVP for me, what I completely forgot about was Ed O'Neill. Oh my God. He's so, yeah, he's so I mean, good. Oh my. I, I completely forgot he was in the movie. And I was like, oh, he's, I want more of Ed O'Neill. Everything what? he does holds up. Like all the comedy yes. that he does in that yes. movie is still funny. Nothing seems out of place. His monologue at the beginning is unbelievable. <laughs> what I love about him is he also, they use him to establish the rules of the movie. Because, like, when he comes in and starts talking in the, into the camera, you're like, is this movie just going to be complete <laughs> anarchy? And then I think it's Wayne. Wayne like, comes no, back. Yeah, 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 you yeah. don't get to talk to the camera. So, like, Wayne knows there's a camera there, but the other characters don't get to know. And from then on, that, yeah. that rule holds. It's only and Wayne and Garth that gets only to talk Wayne to and the Garth. camera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is kind of amazing. I, I do think – I why did would this come up before, Emily? I can't remember what movie it was that we talked about Fourth Wall Breakage before. There was some other film that it happened in. I can't remember what it was, but it doesn't matter. My point is, I think generally speaking, fourth wall stuff makes me cringe. It doesn't generally work. Um, I think it's a very hard needle to thread, but um, this movie People doesn't say this. Yes. I don't think it's like, I have, I have never felt that way about a fourth really? wall break. About- Says the person with the flea bag poster. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It does work there. And works in that one moment in Trading Places where Eddie Murphy looks right camera. <laughs> I yeah. still remember sure. that. Like, and it also works in the, it, I mean, problematic movie, sure. but 16 Candles totally works. When and and, and Ferris Bueller. Yeah. yeah. Ferris Bueller, you're talking well, about. Ferris Bueller, that's, yeah. I, I mean, I, mean, I don't yeah. mean to suggest that it, that, that it can't work or that it hasn't worked a lot of the time. I think that the one that jumps out at me is uh, the first season of Sex and the City, um, mm-hmm. where I just was like, I don't like this. And then it just turns it to VO, which is the way that it should have been, obviously. Um, I think we talked about, Emily, the, the voiceover versus fourth wall breakage at some yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and, and I do appreciate that this movie goes right at it. Like, Wayne is talking to the camera in the first, like, 30 seconds of the movie, it feels like. I think, yeah. And I think the thing that, uh, as someone who works a lot in this space just across various projects, like, the thing you need to have is rules on when the VO comes in. Or when the fourth wall break happens. Sure. And like that lets the audience feel comfortable around the idea of. Because sure. like the, the breaking of the fourth wall has existed as like, like it's arguably older than not breaking the fourth wall. If you look at like Greek, sure. Greek dramas had like people who just yeah. came and were like, Choruses. this is the story you are watching. <laughs> Hello, audience. Welcome. We are going to hear about a, a guy who kills his dad and marries his mom. Doesn't that sound fun? And you know, like comics, as we talked about, have a lot of that. Like, this is just very much in the DNA. And I think when I watch Wayne's World, I know how much Mike Myers loves movies from the 40s. This movie has a lot in common with the Marx Brothers in a lot of ways. Like, the fact that it's just bits, especially, and that, like, what story there is kind of comes in toward the end, but not really. Um, and that there's this totally superfluous love story um, is, yeah, it's it's all so... Marx Brothers, but the Marx Brothers loved playing around with the idea of the audience is watching us, and how can we play around? I think with there's that? I, I, Ebert reviews uh, refers to this in his review, but I do think there is sort of a Zucker and Abrams kind of component mm-hmm. to this as well, because you know we are in the post Top Secret, you know airplane 
era, which is in the 80s, and obviously we're in the early 90s with Wayne's World. I, I think that there's a, I mean, it's very much a pastiche of a bunch of things mm -hmm. that are all bouncing against each other, um, which is why I sort of understand why Paramount seemed a little unsure as to what to do with this movie. I mean, there was a teaser trailer, which I remember seeing in the theater that I rewatched, where they're inside the Adams family. Do you remember this by any chance? Oh, so no. the Adams family had just come out, I believe, in 90 um, or One. maybe 91. And uh, so Paramount, in this sort of cross-pollination of it all, did a teaser where Wayne and Garth are in the cemetery of the Adams family. And they're like doing the whole snapping their fingers and doing the whatever. And then they're like, oh, and we're making a movie and it's coming out next. Like I, it totally cross purposes. Like I don't this understand is, how these. This but... is crazy because Adam's family comes out uh, early November, 1991. Okay. Uh, Wayne's world comes out Valentine's day, 92. <laughs> so like, what? that is such a, like, this Bizarre. is how we're launching our campaign for yeah. this movie. We're... It's, it's, it's so strange that someone at Paramount was like, well, these two things speak to each other, right? Like they don't in any real way, but it was sort of fascinating to me to watch this, this moment of marketing where they're just like, how do we market this movie? Like what is Paramount? I, mean, I will say Paramount at the time was marketing like so many more movies than they do oh, now. Oh, oh, it was like, all right, what are we going to do with this? Fine. We'll sure. do uh, Bottoms Family. Who knows? I mean, sure. it was just, you know, and who do they probably have super low expectations. They did not Absolutely. expect the monster hit. No, I mean, I, I'll just to give a little bit of context uh, in terms of a synopsis, this is a big screen spinoff of the Saturday Night Live sketch. Rob Lowe plays a producer who wants to take this public access show, Wayne's World, to Rob the world. Lowe, speaking, I'm just going to say, speaking of Barbie, yes, Rob please. Lowe's job is executive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and evil executive. Yeah, I mean, exactly. just, yes. yeah, just unsure of what his motives are. Um, but I, it, I think, I think it's to appease Brian Doyle Murray, right? But he has such a but, but, but it was his idea. Literally, it's his idea to like, okay, I'm gonna sell this guy on selling ads on a show that I have to then sell them on the it's and there's also zero pressure on him to do it. Like, why yeah, I don't know who his boss is. No, he, have a, he just has an idea and he wants to see it through because it's pretty it's so amazing. Funny. It's pretty amazing. He's he's just this kind of like we're introduced to him. In the first scene of this movie is him and Ioni Sky, who I completely forgot was in this movie. Um, and they're watching TV in bed, uh, having gone to, to Sharky's for pizza. I, because she works as a waitress at Sharky's, which is insane. Like everything about this, like this is how the movie starts. And then she essentially introduces him to this late night cable show, which is Wayne's World. And he has this light bulb idea to fold these two things together. Um, but like, that's it, right? And then he's successful in doing that. And and by the way, like at the end, none of this changes anything, right? Like, does that does he lose at the end? The only thing he seems to really lose is Cassandra. He loses because I he don't doesn't know get he to wants corrupt. Her. He doesn't get to corrupt the show. He just he like Wayne doesn't sell out. It's clear like they're not going to do the right. big studio version of Wayne's World. So in that right. way, yes, he loses. What he loses, I don't know. I mean, and, look, and, I don't want to sound like a studio executive. You're like, no, why? No. What are his motivations? And we can be more clear. Sure. But 
I was actually asking these questions when we were watching the movie. It does make you sort of, again, we, as we've been doing this podcast, which we've been doing now for, you know, six months or so, we've covered probably 40 movies from 1992. And it was a different time, as we can all attest. I think audiences were a lot less cynical. Um, they were probably expecting less from movies. They weren't as sort of, you know, uh, putting things under microscopes like we are now, which is why I think Barbie is such a miracle of a movie in its own right, because it feels like... A, a thing that we don't do anymore which is just like have fun and just like go to the movies and there can be really interesting ideas in there and this movie which comes out as emily mentioned on valentine's day 1992 it opens up against Me- medicine man fried green tomatoes the hand that rocks the cradle final analysis these are the movies that are out oh in february of, just of remember, like every weekend there were like three new movies to choose from yeah Somebody tweeted a list recently. Sorry, Victor. Somebody tweeted a list of like that's their top movies of like 1995, and then listed all of the other movies. And I realized, oh my god, I saw all of these in the theater, and it was like hundreds. Not like it's, hundreds. Of I mean, that's what you did. I would go it's multiple crazy. times a week. We did um, so uh, with my previous co-host Kenny and I did 1999 for five and a half years. We did that podcast, covered every movie that came out in 1999, wow. and it's in the vicinity of like 320 movies, give or take. I mean, it's around there. That's how many movies came out then. And the spectrum of it is just crazy. So it is sort of this, you know, 1992, looking at this particular weekend, right? And the spectrum of what is available to you, right? Where you could go to see, you know, Hand That Rocks the Cradle or Wayne's World. I mean, that is, it's it's pretty crazy. This movie goes on to make $183 million on a $20 million budget. Um, in 1992 dollars, so you can you know imagine that's probably 350, 400 now, something in that vicinity. Um, it's it's an enormous hit. It's the biggest SNL movie that's ever been, really. Um, Blues Brothers gives it, I guess, a run for its money, but still, like those are the two big ones. Um, and it it's, creates a whole host of SNL sketch movies that come out in its wake. Um, it has 79% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 84 from audiences. The movie's still like this beloved classic of a film. But I, I do wonder what anyone expected from this movie when it came out. Like, I, I just don't even know. I guess it was for the SNL kids, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean. I like, I like, yeah. I was very surprised to find, find out this was the second SNL movie that Blues Brothers comes out in 80 or 81 and then this movie takes then it takes them 12 years to get to this and then they just make 17 million I dated a girl who saw Night at the Roxbury three nights in a row so that's (laughs) that feels like a a she dragged me she dragged me one of those showings because she was like did you like it it's fine. I don't remember anything about it. She thought Chris Kattan was super hot. And I was like, that's a weird crush to have, but that's I'm not judging That's you. interesting. <laughs> it's, I mean, I think ultimately what happens with this is that they, they realize, obviously, that these SNL movies are very low overhead. They can bang them out really quickly. They're super cheap and, you know, they'll make their money back. Like, they just seem like easy bets. But nothing is like this. And then there's a sequel to this movie, which doesn't do nearly as well, which Penelope Spheris was uh, told she could not direct by by Mike Myers. Um, I like I looked into that movie. Yeah. I, I just was reading about it. Yeah, I, just, course, yeah. I read the Wikipedia page. Sure. They were going to base it on a movie like Mike Myers was like, oh. here's here's a movie 
he just started like rewriting this movie something something like Pimlico was the name of it and it's about these uh-huh. people forming their own country and Wayne's World 2 was going to be about Wayne and Garth forming their own country and then right as they were getting into production Paramount mm-hmm. found out it was based on a movie they didn't own the rights to and hadn't purchased the adaptation rights to and they were like you cannot make this movie because we don't we didn't know about this and that is absolutely a thing that would happen to me i would be like oh (laughs) we don't own the rights to hamlet what (laughs) i do want to give a shout out to uh bonnie and terry turner who are a husband and wife writing team who co-wrote this film and co-wrote the second film uh they would go on to uh create third rock from the sun and that 70s show so they're Mm -hmm. doing very well for themselves Yes, yes. But if if you want to know, the liter- my point is just if you want to know why Wayne's World 2 feels completely unstructured, that's because they wrote a script in like three weeks. <laughs> they could do it. So they could make it. <laughs> it feels, uh, so I saw Wayne's World 2. I remember I saw it when it came out. It came out almost a year to the day. Like they basically just. Oh, it know. came out in, it came out in December, 1993. It was oh, okay. like. So it's a year and a yeah. half later. Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. it's almost two years. Yeah. But it is it's very fast. fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just remembered the Jurassic Park joke, which felt kind of, like it all just felt kind of too pop culture for its own good. Like the thing about the first Wayne's World movie is that the pop culture references that it's making all felt somewhat older, right? We, like, we, we kind of zoomed right past this earlier talking about the yeah. Laverne and Shirley thing, but I think yeah. the reason this all works and like the, the humor about women being hot or kind of some of the gags that play off cultural stereotypes. The reason I think most of them still work, including the pop culture references, is that they are just as much jokes about Wayne and Garth, that they are going to like stop their, their, uh, their like visit to Milwaukee to do the, where they have this very important thing to do, to go to this concert of this guy they love to do a Laverne and Shirley riff. And that gives you a <laughs> sense of who that gives you a sense of who they are. Cause like the pop culture gags are not just like, they are, Zaz, Zucker Abrams sort of adjacent, but they're very rooted in, oh, this is just a thing that like my friends and I might do. You know, if we're out driving around at night and we see right. an old guy in his car, we might do a great Poupon thing. It sure. is like, it is kind of like that thing of like comedy is often about like giving voice to our worst impulses. Sure. This is a bad impulse I have. I always want to make inappropriate pop culture references. And Wayne and Garth actually do it. They just go out there. They get to live like, our, our fantasy. They get to live of, yeah, our sure. fantasy of reenacting the Laverne and Shirley opening title. But it's I mean, even there's they go to the Alice Cooper concert, and then as they're as they go back to the the uh, mm-hmm. studio to record the show, they're like, "Oh, we almost we almost missed recording our first episode because we were so enamored with mm-hmm. Alice Cooper." They really do have this. I mean, they're clearly supposed to be teenagers. Are we like? I mean, or, I mean, how old are they supposed to be? I think it's unclear. Like, I remember thinking back in the day, like they were a little too old to play those parts. But watching it now, Mike Myers is still—he's sort of baby-faced. Yeah. Dana Carvey has like full-on wrinkles. Absolutely. Like when they cut to those close-ups, they're like, "Oh, like not, yeah. no." Don't like do I that. almost feel yeah. like it was cruel. Like they didn't filter him or something. They just <laughs> it's yeah. uh. Yeah, I, they, I, how old are they supposed to be, Emily? Like twenty? I would guess. I would guess between twenty and twenty-five, because okay. it is considered like, like, like very uh, shameful that he lives with his parents. Right. Which, if he was seventeen, would not be the case. Right. So I guess he's. I'm guessing he's somewhere in his mid twenties. You that know. Makes sense. 
that makes yeah. sense. They're going, yeah. I mean, they're going to concerts. They're although I don't know if we see them drinking. We might. I don't know, but I, I know what you're saying. It's definitely it. They feel kind of older. I mean, they're certainly not as old as they actually are. Um, I I think that that Mike Myers and Tia Carrere actually have a great chemistry. Like I I think that that she's really good in this movie. Um, and I would argue I'm not sure that she's given the career that she should have had coming out of this movie because she's really funny she's very charismatic she's awesome she's way out of wayne's league like there's she seems so completely out of his he's punching way out of his weight class um i'm amazed she gives him the time of day but i mean i guess that's part of the fantasy of he is a television star phil and that is makes he? up for she a doesn't lot. know that i don't know that she knows that when she meets what, him well listen between when she meets him and when they talk the second time which is on the same night somebody pulls up an episode <laughs> of wayne's world on youtube on their phone and it's like look at yeah. this this guy's it's true yeah somebody it's pulled out a vcr that they're carrying around <laughs> yeah in the tape that they recorded um, I... I will by going yeah. back please to yeah back to the turners we have one body and terry turner story which is yeah. we had a meeting somewhat early in our career um with the director who uh, was talking to us about various things. And at a certain point, he, he mentioned that... He had called us for the meeting. Yeah. It was like very important that this man wanted to meet with us. And we were really sort of like, we can't believe he knows who we are. And then he mentioned that the reason he wanted to meet with us is because James L. Brooks told uh, him that we were terrific. And we were like, holy shit, James L. Brooks knows who we That's are? Amazing. This is insane. And then it becomes more and more clear that we are not the people he thinks we are because he thinks we are Bonnie and Terry Turner (laughs) because they wrote the first Brady Bunch movie and we wrote the second Brady Bunch movie and he got that confused and it was crushing to realize, Oh, this was all a big mistake. And we've left. I mean, I guess a man and woman writing team. I I mean, I guess that's all writing team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's still out there. We're still here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i just I mean, want to say i've seen very, him on the picket lines for what that's worth i just want to say very brady sequel i actually slightly prefer to the first brady bunch movie oh, i don't know how Thank much you. of that's you guys but yeah <laughs> thanks good appreciate work. it we, we, yeah we kind of went a little we went a little farther with it <laughs> I, that is another kind of it feels like when is forgive me when are the brady bunch movies they're in the mid 90s right yeah, I think the Brady sequel came out in 96, I want to say. And the first so one was like, probably 94. But they, they definitely feel a similar tone. Like, I don't think, I don't right? know that those movies get made without Wayne's World. That's that's sort of what I was going to, like, it feels like Wayne's World also creates that offshoot of the boomer TV shows turned into movies thing. Which which also they, and then literally Penelope Spheris goes on to direct the Beverly Hillbillies unfortunately well that's um, like, that's like such a like such a gen x thing because all these you know brady bunch was like mostly popular with the kids of the baby boomers who like watched it endlessly in reruns and that's just like gen x is this generation of people raised by television in a certain way where like sure. there's just constant reruns and they're just like so conversant with old television old movies like you see that totally. in how mike myers approaches telling these stories so I do, th- yeah, I do think there's like, there's this brief window when Gen X is the cool people, which we're talking about in 1992, weirdly. We have um, a moment. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> as an elder millennial, I'm watching my moment slip away from me. So. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that these, these movies are so clearly influenced by the beats of television as well, of the, of the structure of them, the 
joke a minute thing of just keeping people um, laughing. So, you know, story is kind of secondary to just making sure that there's a good joke coming around the corner. I, I do think it's interesting that Lorne Michaels hires Penelope Spheris to direct this film, having seen a bunch of her rock documentaries, which are incredible in their own right. I'm not sure that I totally understand how he gets from one to the other. It's not to say that she didn't do a great job. She did an incredible job directing this, but like, I I guess there is a kind of rock and roll infusion in this film, you know, when it comes to the Alice Cooper stuff, when it comes to Wayne's desire to buy this guitar, to Cassandra being in a rock band, like there is a rock and roll thing. So maybe that's the connection, but um, they did not get along. Um, for what it's worth, Mike Myers, as you guys mentioned, not a laugh a minute, seems like a very intense guy, seems like a pretty insecure guy, <laughs> um, seemed a little petulant on set, would get very upset about margarine versus butter at Crafty and things like that, um, that, uh, listen, I, I don't know what to tell you, uh, but he- By the way, th- if they had margarine at Crafty instead of butter, I'm with them. Who the fuck wants margarine? <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, the, no, the if parent... it's the other way around, it's he's out of his yeah, mind. It's terrible. But... Yeah, terrible. Yeah. Uh, he, he threatened to leave the production when they wouldn't do um, Bohemian Rhapsody. I guess the studio wanted to do uh, Welcome to the Jungle, the Guns N' Roses song. And he obviously pushed for Queen, got it in there. Um, it was a huge thing. It revives Queen. It basically brings them to a whole new generation. Um, Freddie Mercury, who unfortunately passed before the movie came out, did get to see the scene, the Bohemian Rhapsody scene before passing, and gave it his blessing. Um, it was my favorite what, scene of that movie. It's when Rami Malek watched the Wayne's World. <laughs> don't even get me started. Had on tears that in his movie. eyes. Oh it was god. so moving. You know, oh my god, that movie is just. <sighs> It's rough and and made so much money. But um, what's interesting, though, is he fights Mike Myers fights for Bohemian Rhapsody. They shoot this scene. And then unfortunately, Mike Myers father passes away shortly, like during post production of the movie, uh, which is obviously very sad. But he then demands they cut it from the movie. He wants it cut from the film because he thinks it's not funny. And Penelope Spheris, you know, puts her foot down and says, no, it needs to be in there. It's one. And it's obviously now arguably the most iconic scene from this film. I I do think that part of, and again, I don't want to psychoanalyze Mike Myers because I don't know the man, but I'm just going to, based on what I've read here in terms of his frustrations with this film, I think is he knows this is his shot, right? Like he knows that if this doesn't work, it's still, it's his, it's his movie premiere. He's been in a movie before. I imagine there's a lot of insecurity, a lot of frustration, a lot of, pressure that he's feeling but then i also think if he's not getting the laugh he doesn't know how to process that <laughs> like it seems that way that, i mean from what we've read and heard that feels accurate yeah so for what it's worth i think and and i do think that um i think he's a genius i don't mean to suggest that i don't think he's incredibly talented i think that some people process their genius in other ways some people are able to actually like live with it and other people seem to sort of fight against it in a weird way um but i think he's great in this film yeah there's something else that happens watching a movie with this kind of distance which is you know 
it was so revolutionary at the time. And then all of the jokes get co-opted by people who just aren't funny and want to say schwing or not, or, and it's very hard to watch the movie and go back to remember when yeah. those were new and yeah. funny. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's happened the with version Borat. Of, yeah, so the, my wife, right. I, I don't even want to hear that from anyone anymore. So it's really hard to watch them do the swing bits and think like, oh, this killed and was so funny because nobody had done it when we now have, you know, 30 years of people trying to make that funny. It's I just want to. Yeah, I just want to yeah. say that my wife and Schwing are still funny when done by lesbians. That's the <laughs> one case in which, like, by the way, everything's funnier when lesbians do it. Though is ultimately the truth. I, I mean, I'll say this though. I agree with you, uh, Harry. It, it, it's interesting. Like, there's so many not jokes in this. I was like, I can't believe that not jokes were ever funny. Like, it's crazy to me that. I mean, I, I don't know. The, the jokes in this movie that work for me are. You know, uh, I thought I had mono for a year. It turns out I was just really <laughs> bored. Um, it's things like that, like just hard jokes that I think are just funnier for me. I also think my Who? second MVP of this movie might be Lara Flynn Boyle. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh-oh. You're not I a fan of Lara Flynn Boyle? I, did, I think she, I love, I love Lara Flynn Boyle. You know, as all, I love all Twin Peaks uh sure, alums sure, sure but like uh yeah, right, I, yeah i just i heard you say that and i was like yes of course yes i get it no i'm sorry that i had a crush on lerflin boyle she's when I was very fun listen uh sherilyn fan all the way but um I see i was more of a lark if i had to choose and let's be honest there was never really a choice for me but uh yeah i would have yeah larflin boyle would, would have been i just, just i think she's just really killing it in this movie and i i part of it is the commitment to the bit, a bit that, by the way, Mike Myers had to apologize to his ex-girlfriend about because he had an ex-girlfriend who yes, bought him a gun rack. Yeah. I don't know her name was Stacy, but he bought her. She bought him a gun rack and, and she saw the movie later and he felt he needed to apologize for it. But the gun rack thing is great. Um, that whole scene is great. Her wearing the Wayne necklace, uh, the, the hey, Wayne, hey, and then just right into the car. I don't know. It's just that stuff is just... It really works for me, but Emily, it doesn't seem to be working for you. No, I think I think it's very funny. I'm just more judging you than I am the character. (laughs) I'm shocked. I'm shocked that you would judge me under these circumstances. Um, I I think she's great in this. I I think that this gave Rob Lowe a whole new lease on life in his career. We were talking about that. I mean, this was only a short time after his sex tape, which had it happened today, he would not recover. I mean, that girl was 16. Like, no one seems to ever talk about that. And it happened at a political convention. So. It had at the DNC. It's extra, so, everything about it. Extra creepy. Um, and apparently what I had heard was like, they could get him cheap. You know, you look at what he was doing in that window on IMDb and like, it, yeah. it's not much. No. Masquerade, this, I think yeah. he had done Masquerade. Which was like very like kind of skinamaxy sort of softcore. Totally. Movie. I think also this movie showed he could be funny. Which yeah, was right. something that he didn't, didn't have in his... And it wasn't even it wasn't even that he could be funny. It was that he could take his on screen persona, still play it, and turn it five degrees to make it funny. Which has just been the entire second half of his career, basically. You know, as soon as he lands Parks and Rec, that's just like all. It's hard not to see a lot of Parks and Rec in this performance too. Like that that he's sort of like, oh, I get it. People like I can laugh at myself. But first, he went into West Wing, where like he became a dramatic actor again. Sure. No, totally. It's and and then yeah. I was just going to say the other casting thing is we were, uh, because we completely forgot, 
we're watching and we're like, oh, who's Mr. Big? Who's the, the big guy at the end tapping his foot? It's we're like, who's this going to be? We're literally asking. Yes. I was thinking, I was like, hmm, let's think. It's 92. Like, you want Bill Murray, but Bill Murray you can't get. Sure. Maybe like Lauren calls Dan Aykroyd. I'm like, sure. ooh, I think it's, he says the Chicago thing. It's totally me to Dan Aykroyd. And then it's some dude. Some guy. Just some guy. Like, who was Why? In, we looked up was in Goodfellas. And also for a time was Michael Jackson's manager, but got fired for embezzling funds from Michael Jackson. That's what happened to That's... that guy. But why you know the Goodfellas thing? Isn't he the guy who? Sh- I think he's the guy who shoots uh, Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. Maybe, maybe. I, maybe. I, I, I mean, he's I, not the guy that calls and tells him it's done. As like, Harry said, like, like why build it up with like we're just going to see his feet? Because wait till this guy steps out of the fucking limo, and then it's who? <laughs> it's it's no one. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't. I don't because he's got a cigar, and so he must be the guy in the limo. And it's then pretty it's great. Like Scooby Doo ending. I was like, oh, now we're going to see the real guy. It's not like this schmo we've never seen before. It's going to be Dan Aykroyd now. And it was the same guy. The Scooby-Doo ending is great because of the joke at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Where he's like, how's the theme park or something? The amusement park, yeah. (laughs) How's the the amusement park, yes. It seems like, wait, why is that in there? And then, yeah, definitely pays it's, off. It's fantastic. I, I, the, the Rob Lowe thing is fascinating because he does go back to drama. He, you know, notoriously turns down Grey's Anatomy, um, which, you know. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that He was that supposed either. to be, he was supposed to be Patrick Dempsey's character. Oh, it was wow. apparently written for him, uh, for what that's worth. But he turns that down and then ultimately does Parks and Rec and what have you. But I, I the, Rob Lowe's career is is a fascinating trajectory of of choices, but. You know, did you ever watch the show where he and his sons like chase aliens or ghosts or ghosts? They chase ghosts. It's a no. it's a reality Is it on right show. Right now, no, it's a reality it, show. It lasted one season, and it was like he framed it as like I just want to spend time with my sons, and the only way I know how is to make a reality show where we chase ghosts. <laughs> it was like. It was like, I don't know. I watch a lot of ghost reality shows. We're learning a lot about me right now. Um, But like, uh, yeah, it it was one of the better because like they were having fun with it. And I don't know. I wish Rob Lowe. I I wish. Honestly, I've heard he's very fun on 911 Lone Star. So I don't know what I'm saying. I have friends who write on it and say he's lovely. Say he's a lot of fun. So I mean, bring back. Let's have bring back the Rob Lowe and his sons chase ghosts reality show. (laughs) Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, as a as a Canadian, I need to point out uh, the the Canadian references that exist in this movie. Mike Myers is a very big, uh, obviously he's a he's Canadian. He's from Toronto or uh, Scarborough. Uh, the hockey stuff is all references to obviously to Canada. Uh, Stan Makita is a Tim Hortons reference. Um, Aurora, Illinois. There's Aurora, Ontario. There's a lot of kind of stuff that he's doing in there uh, that I appreciate as a Canadian and uh, makes me like the film even more but um it's stuff that like i just don't think means anything to anyone else like i think he's just kind of doing it for himself it seems um or the game on thing is still funny them saying game on game and just like that it's so just sweet and just feels because i mean you don't yeah. have to have grown up in canada to know what it's like to be playing on the street and suddenly you gotta stop <laughs> every, but every it's party. also like it's like so many of the scenes as we mentioned earlier that feel like pointless like i love it but like the only reason that scene exists is so way is so that garth can be like should we trust benjamin like that's basically it and then it's just game on also what a sort of more interesting way to do (laughs) get exposition across like normally like so what are they doing they're walking they're having coffee they're just sitting around like he framed it nicely with that hockey game so you're not having a hard time swallowing exposition and it also gave you the pipe he gives you larklin boil on the pipe which i do remember getting a huge laugh it's great it's a great joke 
we talked yes, a little bit about Penelope Spheres, but like I think she's yes. genius at framing comedy. I think that like we we just did an, a sister act episode uh, yeah. where we talked about like how the uh, the comedy in that movie works, but the direction's a little anonymous, yeah. and you really see the difference in a movie like this where Penelope, Penelope Spheres knows how to frame a scene, even if it's just dialogue, so that the mm -hmm. jokes hit with maximum impact. And when a joke is visual, she like does the perfect job of placing the camera so that the joke plays visually, which mm -hmm. is like you know a, a skill that like to return to Barbie, I think Greta Gerwig is also really good at that. It's a skill not a lot of people think about when they think about comedy direction because we so often think about like comedy performers. And of course, the performance is so important and getting that performance is a big part of directing. But yeah, I feel like the visual aspect of this movie is a little... It looks like when you stack it right up against Sister Act, it, it's like a different world. It's like Citizen Kane. Yeah. <laughs> Do we know where they shot it? We were wondering, because uh, some of it feels like L.A. Most of it's L.A. It most is L.A., okay. Yeah. They did some shots in uh, Chicago, um, some in the Illinois area, obviously. And there's a and... lot of tilt-up buildings. So many <laughs> tilt-up buildings. <laughs> yes, like anonymous buildings that could be really anywhere. I, you know, I do think it's interesting to your point, Emily, too, of sort of of the, the little jokes that they find within scenes where, like, when they go to um, the car shop, uh, to get uh, Wayne. I, I don't even know if it's Wayne or Garth's car because they, they each drive it at different times. So you're well, just and like... Red Mike Myers did not know how to drive. Oh, well, then that makes sense. True. And they okay. taught him how to drive for the movie. So maybe <laughs> that's why. Maybe they just wanted to take some of the burden. Probably off. for the Robert, Robert Patrick scene. That's the scene where he's actually driving. He is driving. Over, which is another crazy reference that you would yes. have no idea what that means. Which he, which he hates, time. which he hated at the time. He was like, we don't need this joke. It's too in the moment. And it killed, right? Like people, I but... didn't understand that joke at all. Cause I oh, had, cause you hadn't seen I T2 hadn't in the time. <laughs> and so I watch it at, I watch it at this party with a bunch of other kids my age. And I'm like, they're all laughing. I'm like, why is that funny? And then somebody explains it to me at length. And I'm like, oh, I guess. Sure. <laughs> There's also a joke in um uh, the, the episode of Simpsons where Homer and Flanders become best friends and Homer's chasing after the car. And it's like another T2 reference and I still I really just need to see T2 I needed to you really did I needed to not grow up in a fundamentalist religious environment like that's that's sin one we should have it's, a, it's a little restrictive it seems yeah, yeah. um I, but but what I was gonna say is when they're getting the car fixed and um the guy who I, I think his name is Phil actually who at the beginning they find on the park bench he's over party he's, he's over party and he looks like he's gonna spew uh so they they he works at the at the uh the car shop and they're pulling money out of their pockets as though they don't know how money works and like how 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 numbers yeah. work it's just it's it's and it's a throwaway joke because they keep going like more more <laughs> it's just i don't know there's something about that type of stuff where it's like they're finding jokes that you know you wouldn't find normally um and i like i love that their intelligence varies from scene to scene but yes. uh i'm gonna <laughs> i remembered my intro so i'm gonna drop it in right here and oh, great, great. oh perfect perfect uh, no, and it? i'm uh, i'm your special guest host emily st james sitting in for your normal host senator diane feinstein who's all partied out please continue <laughs> <laughs> my god that's incredible she is all partied out i would say uh so She's is um, so is mitch what? mcconnell what is she crullers and what was the other thing you need stat oh yeah crullers and crullers coffee. and coffee mm -hmm. yeah crullers and coffee stat yeah it's 
um there's there's so many jokes that i love uh in this hi i'm in delaware like why the blue screen does <laughs> delaware is fantastic right. um it, it's it's just sort of um it's filled with great jokes sometimes i wish i could boldly go where no one has gone before i'll probably stay in aurora um it, it's there's and that apparently was the last scene they shot which is them at the airport when they're on the hood of the car and the airplane goes by and there's sort of two scenes there there's the one later when they kind of and the last scene when they get annoyed with each other is the last scene they shot and apparently it was because everyone was done with this fucking movie like it was just like we want to go home uh enough is enough so they shot the apology and the makeup scene before they shot the breakup scene because yeah that i literally missed it i was like wait what i mean i think i was talking (laughs) about it and i was like oh wait they they made up that's okay you missed it apologizes but i love that it's just completely obliterated by the sound of the jet correct correct which is a good bit i mean i think that you guys mentioned this earlier with the garth stuff which is that he does feel sort of like he's these bridges between plot stuff if that makes sense you have him sort of you have him giving that tour of benjamin's apartment to camera uh where excuse me he finds the condoms and says rib for her pleasure and goes ew um again where they feel like children like that that's that's a story point because he finds out the plot but then things (laughs) (laughs) but it's just like that they're gross that he's grossed out by condoms is something a like 12 year old would be so there is this kind of weird infantile yeah he does see yes exactly he definitely there's there's definitely man child you know some might say maybe spectrum kind of garth you know there definitely so yeah, yeah yeah so but, but he's also good. like there's these moments where he's really heroic too, right? Where when he talks down uh, Benjamin's right hand man with the flashlight, yeah, <laughs> the just the, 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 the arms back, so hold the friends back. The if Benjamin were an ice cream flavor, he'd be pralines and Dick. <laughs> I mean, like there is something about Garth and his kind of I don't even know, like his his utility in this movie that I just was really blown away by. But I think that's sort of the hallmark of a great sketch player too. Totally. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, the, there is obviously sort of this, this, I guess the story ultimately kicks into high gear in kind of the third act of this movie where Benjamin's looking to steal Cassandra. Maybe I'm not even sure he's all that into her, but it seems like he's doing it because the story's telling him to. Yeah, it's very unclear why he's even interested in, so specifically interested in her at that moment. Correct. It's, it's like, is he doing it because he doesn't like Wayne? It's, yeah, it's, it's very know. strange. I think I, I think most, I think a lot of great American comedies mm-hmm. that don't really seem to have stories are just actually about the absurdity of capitalism, and I think this sure. movie is that. <laughs> this movie's like Wayne wants to buy a guitar. To buy the guitar, he has to, like, have a job. So he has to, like, sell out his TV show. And, like, it's going to be sold to some old man who just keeps making money even though he doesn't understand what the American public wants. But he's going to continue making money because he's already rich. Garth is, like, outside of this rubric. He doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about capitalism. And that's why he's kind of, like, the moral center of the movie in a weird way. And so, like, you – the movie doesn't need to have a plot because you're just tracing the absurdity of – 
Well, Wayne wants a guitar. Now he's got a girlfriend. He's got to figure out a way to like keep her. And then this other guy's going to come in and just take everything because he can. He doesn't need a motivation, really. He's a capitalist. It's true. He could just come in and be like, I want, I want this hot girl to be my girlfriend. And, you know, he's got a lot of money. So in theory, he's a real threat. It is, uh, I don't know. I think it's kind of savvy on those grounds. I, I agree. One of the reasons I, I... it holds up. And I do think also that like they don't shine a bright light on the the breakup of the friendship. They kind mm -hmm. of they kind of breeze past it because I don't think they think anyone's going to buy that they're really on the rocks because these two are so fused to one another. But you do have that moment where Garth is upset because <laughs> because Wayne basically fucks off and leaves him hosting the show. We don't actually see him hosting, which is kind mm -hmm. of great. We just have the guy being like, remember that guy's head exploded in scanners and you just see Garth's face? So, like, I, I right, do because, like that. Because he exists outside of capitalist expectations. He doesn't understand how to... I'm doing academia over here, Phil. I know what you're doing. I, I mean, listen, I'm just I'm just, I'm just, just holding on for dear life, really, at this point. But I, I'll I just say like that... Though, I would have given the note that he should have lost Garth and Cassandra and the guitar. Oh, that's a good note. Yeah, that just the guitar, would have been yeah. rock bottom. But, he, yeah. you know. Or he I, I, has to like sell the guitar to get yes, everybody yes, back, yes, something yes, like that. Something yeah. to that effect. It seemed yeah. like it was going to be much more vital to the plot. And it's not. No. <laughs> he just buys it and gets it and everything is fine. That's how I, capitalism I, works, Phil. You buy the thing, you get it, and everything's I, fine. You're never sad again. What I do think <laughs> is interesting, though, is so we, we're obviously talking about this film. We're talking about Newsies uh, next week. And I bring this up just because. Newsies somehow is a movie, a pro-union movie <laughs> inside Disney about taking down the man and unionizing and striking, which is a movie that would never get made today as we sit in the middle of a writers and actors strike. Um, I think it's interesting how this movie is also sort of anti-capitalist in terms of, you know, damn the man, all that kind of energy. And then even now, like Barbie kind of rounds the edges off of that a little bit right like Mattel isn't really the villain in the movie like Will Ferrell's kind of the villain but then turns out to be a nice guy at the end so it is interesting that like in 92 you were okay to kind of thumb your nose at these corporations and to that idea and now you're very much not well that feels very I mean talk about Gen X that was like just the whole thing with Gen X like when did Reality Bites come out it feels like it a little 95. like Five. Right. I mean, because there, there's or, some crossover yeah. there, too, in terms of, like, you know, when we looked at, like, oh, wow, selling out is, like, you could not make a movie the now. Worst selling thing. out is the worst thing. It's, like, people are like, what, what are you talking selling about? Selling out is the yeah. goal. Now. Yeah. Right. Um, Which is part of, I mean, not to come back to Josie, but Josie is a little bit of that, too, right? Like, definitely. I think there's a, there's definitely that energy of, like, don't sell out um, that, that lingers into the early 2000s, but now you can't really get away with that. No, now it's just about you know building your brand so you can sell out. Well, there's yeah. no way to exist outside of of big corporate media unless you are like a child of of wealth. You know, you come from privilege, and you can just make your own stuff. You know, like who are the artists working in film who are just consistently working on the outside of everything and making great? You know, they're mostly like documentarians. Occasionally, you'll have like an Andrew Jarecki who can sure. do that, but it's like. Yeah, you know, to make these things, you need money. And increasingly, you can only get money from people who are just making, you know, commercial IP product. And great stuff gets made within that system. But it is, uh, yeah, selling out has no meaning anymore because uh, everything has already, like the system has sold itself out. There's Absolutely. no way to, yeah, writing a paper <laughs> over here. 
it's it is it is tough now and i don't know if it's because the budgets seem so insane now you know where to to make i mean i i thought i'd love barbie but like it's a 145 million dollar budget on that movie i mean that that is that's a lot of money um you know part of it i think is the practicality of that film i think that you know greta made it such an important thing that she didn't want a lot of cg in the film and she wanted it all to be practical which is ultimately more expensive but still like a Wayne's World at $20 million price tag, right? Like, I'm sure Paramount's just like, yeah, sure, if you want to, like, make fun of corporate culture, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I mean, today it's just a lot harder to do that. What would the budget be for Wayne's World 3 if they made it this year? Because you know they, you know that there's been those conversations. Yeah, it would be ridiculous. It depends how much Mike wants up front, too. Also yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, and and by the way, there was was there a Wayne's World commercial or something that came out in, mm-hmm. in the last? Yeah, well, that that was they they that they reunited because and I I had to read up on this last night, but they you know they hadn't spoken you know after the movie they go their separate way. Well, after, I guess the sequel they go their separate ways, sure. and apparently yeah, Mike didn't want Dan on the sequel, whatever it was, but um, but then he goes on to do you know everybody that he goes on to do Austin Powers, Austin Powers and Doctor sure. Evil is based on the Lord Dana Carvey's Lauren Michaels and. It, and Dana Carvey's really upset about it, and they don't really, they go wow. their separate ways and talk until they did a Super Bowl commercial, like, two years ago, as mm-hmm. Wayne and Garth, and he said that really kind of, they mended fences, I mean, and now they're good friends again, Did that put it behind them. Did that come out of, in the in COVID, they did all these, like, movie reunion things over Zoom, and one of them was Wayne's World, and I wonder, I wonder if, like, that was yeah. the first time they talked. It, COVID they really did an appearance... Worked. They did an appearance on an award, like maybe the MTV Awards or something. They had they'd done so. Oh, yeah. oh, and they did at the SNL of the 40th. They came back oh, and right, did the right, SNL right. 40th together as well. But it didn't, you know, they weren't close after that. They just kind of figured they did it and there was still beef. It's but now they're okay. Yeah, you know, I, I think that Mike Myers seems to be going through his own journey, uh, you know, in terms of. He had that Netflix movie. What was it called? Did you see it, Emily? Where he played like a million characters? Or oh something like God, that? I don't remember at all. Like, but I, it, yeah, but it happened. It was a thing. Um, and you know, he's been threatening to do another Austin Powers. Um, you know, he he I and he shows up obviously in Inglorious Bastards. The Pentaveret. That's it. Ugh. There it is. Um, yeah. I like I a I loved him in Inglorious Bastards. I want to okay. see him do more stuff like that. Just come okay. in and do a character bit in somebody else's movie b i don't want to see another austin powers i want to see another wayne's world not just because of like my rough micro generation but because of like there is something within wayne's world about being too old for doing what you're doing and that's inherent to the joke that is funnier when they're both like approaching extremely old age as opposed to austin powers where it's just like yeah he's still horny you're like okay sure (laughs) i i think part of it the thing too that i always forget is the shrek of it all too Oh, right, yeah. um, I right. that too. So he yeah. does that voice, which I assume makes him a bazillion dollars. <laughs> um, and I, you know, obviously, Cat in the Hat is a nightmare movie that that is just, I mean, crazy that it exists. Um, Love Guru, a disaster. Obviously, but wait, wasn't Cat in the Hat also like because there was the whole Sprockets thing where they were oh, supposed to make the Sprockets movie, yes, and the yes. director of that then yes. got to do Cat in the Hat. Because, and yeah, it was uh, Bo Welsh who right. directed, uh, who, uh, you know, uh, amazing uh, production designer, right. uh, married to Catherine O'Hara. Um, and and uh, yeah, so Cat in the Hat is just a, a truly nightmare fuel movie. Like, it's one of those things where you're just like, I don't understand how any of this happened, um, which is kind of the, you have to toe a line with the Sue stuff. Um, I'm not a big Ron Howard Jim Carrey Grinch movie I don't think they should exist in 
human form. I can't Live believe action suit stuff is very disturbing. It's just it's, it, you get you start getting into like uncanny valley territory. Yes, where it's like yes, people shouldn't yes. look like that. That's and exactly. Have, it's yeah. it's scary. I can't believe that the the Ron Howard Grinch has stance and like I I'm sh- I haven't ever revisited it. I found it too disturbing. But like <laughs> I've been reading my child Green Eggs and Ham now. Sure, you know sure. they're at the age where they can appreciate that. And I guess. <laughs> Nine months is when you really are able to, but like, I just read that and the illustrations are so evocative and so sparse. And I'm just like putting Seuss in any context other than animation, even the computer animated Grinch. It was like a little too detailed. You need that scratchy quality to it. Anyway, I'm going to make a live action green eggs and ham. Once the strike is over, (laughs) you're finally going to get that off the ground. I I mean, this is all just to say that I think that Mike Myers right now is I don't know. Not really sure where he exists. And I imagine that that might have led a little bit back to Dana Carvey. And who knows? Maybe I, I don't want to see a Wayne's World 3. Do you really want to see that? Probably? I would love it. I think, like, here's the thing. It's probably, so it's probably a disaster. But I think there is something very funny about those guys still doing this. And at this point, they'd be in their 50s. So I That's think there's I mean. something very funny about it. I guess it. maybe there's something funny about it. Like, sure. it, like it's, it's a very hard needle to thread. But this movie here's is a very story. hard needle to thread. Oh, wow. Oh, here's the story. You got the yeah. story, Deb? The AMPTP comes to them during the strike for programming. <laughs> <laughs> They're fully out of things to air. We run out. We reach the end of television, and they have to resurrect them. I do. I I, yeah. I do keep waiting for the AMPTP to go to like the American movie guys from that movie and just be like, "Hey, listen, we need Coven. Yes, got to see us. Oh, oh my guys. god, we need Coven. That's what people need. I, I as a, as another little time capsule from '92, which I think is kind of amazing, is so the the music video that Cassandra is shooting, where like she's got this giant boa constrictor on and she's in the jungle, and they're I mean it's absurd, um, is actually a reference to a Pearl Jam music video for Even Flow that has never seen the light of day. That that truly they were just like, we hate this so much. We are never making another music video again. Like it literally was just that was a breaking point for them. I would give anything to see the jungle even flow music video. It from first it was a jungle like it was a direct. That's what that's what that's saying. That's what they say. Wow. I mean, who, who directed it? That I don't know. Uh, I mean, that person probably is. I mean, it's got to be like it? one of three guys, right? Well, right. sure, because that's the only like people who were making music videos. Or like Samuel <laughs> yes. Bear. Like, I feel like Romanic, we can find yeah. out. <laughs> it's like Mark Romanic did a jungle video with Pearl Jam. He's a dad yeah. at my school. I'm going to ask. Oh, well, he'll know who did it. If he, yeah, he'll definitely know, he'll know who did it. did it at the very yeah. least. It's, I, I do think that the, um, the Dana Carvey thing is interesting as well in terms of like his career just never fully connected. Well, I think the year is either the same year or the year after Austin Powers blows up and becomes even bigger than Wayne's World. Actually, you know, I don't think it was bigger than Wayne's World. I think, I think it kind of found its life it on became, video, but it was still yeah. a hit. Um, he makes Master of Disguise, which is supposed oh. to be his movie that's going to show you know showcase his talents and doing all this and it's just it, it kills his movie career essentially um and, and his, his television podcast, his new podcast i'm enjoying now with david Spade. oh is it oh that's really good it's really really sweet and it's really good and i'm glad his, to um, listen to it. his television show is also notorious in terms of having right. you know, one of the greatest writing staffs that's ever been comedy um and if people haven't watched the hulu documentary about that television show you should watch the dana carvey thing because it's amazing it's all about the making of that show and how they <laughs> how they just were doing things they shouldn't do and, and well they put it after home improvement it was like the most the most vicious I, I was, yeah 
I Home Improvement was my favorite show, and of I course I watched the Dana Carvey show. Like, uh, 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 my love for Home Improvement was waning at that point in time. I think I think by then I was onto X Files, which like changed okay. my life. But like, sure, sure, sure. but um, but yeah, I still was watching Home Improvement. I watched the Dana Carvey show, and was like, "What is this? This is interesting. <laughs> this is fun." <laughs> Yeah, it I mean, is, obviously uh, I knew who he was because I'd seen Wayne's World, but it is. I mean, it's a crazy show, and it's it is also you know a, a symbol of what could get on the air back in the day and what kind of risks were taken by broadcast networks back then. But like, I mean, it's it's an insane thing. You had like a sketch of Bill Clinton with like numerous breasts uh, feeding Baby. goats. <laughs> And I think that was the opening sketch. I think people went from home improvement to, to that. what the fuck am I watching? And they literally just, you probably saw people turning it's off great. the television it's great. channel. It's wild. Like, I just, yeah. Remember how home improvement ended with bloopers and it would be like <laughs> Tim Allen, <laughs> Tim Allen coming that. in, Tim Allen would come in and be like, Hey, Patricia. I mean, Jill. And then the audience go, oh, and you go from that to Bill Clinton nursing puppies. That's, that's, that's perfect. That's you know, good. the thing you're saying about David Carvey is there's some yeah. people who, like, he is a all-time great sketch player, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's hard to just translate. Oh, yeah. Like, if I see, you watch him in a movie and you don't want to see him play just one character. And there are other people that are, like, for years, Martin Short was like that, you know, where he was the ultimate talk show guest great on sketches, but he had a hard time figuring out how to turn that into like just one consistent character on a show or a movie. And I feel like there's some, I mean, there's some, there's some, some of the women on SNL that are like that too, where it's just like, just want to see them do characters. I was just going to ask, cause it's, you know, looking at, at your films and obviously you're making films a little bit later. So, you know, it's a different thing, but it is nice to see to a certain degree that you had a little bit more prominently female characters. You had more prominent female comedian characters, but like back in the early nineties and Emily, we've talked about this obviously. And it's, it's one of the reasons why you love this podcast. I love kidding. it. Uh, is, is there's just a real lack of strong female, you know, complex female characters. Um, it's, it's a, it's a real fucking bummer. That's one reason I like Cassandra. Like she's not like a complex yes. character, but yeah. she has like a dimension, you know, <laughs> Like, she's allowed like you she goes she's allowed to have an implicit backstory sure. she's like really good at singing and doing rock and roll and all of that and like you know she's more than just extremely hot like she is extremely sure. hot you don't sure. entirely buy that she's in love with wayne but you buy that she's a person who has her own interests and that is often enough to like make a love story work sure. in a movie like this because you're like oh she has her own interests therefore there must be something in her psychology that makes her like this guy it also speaks to, you know, we talked about how we recorded recently the Sister Act. I mean, that's why Whoopi is such a like lightning in a bottle type, you know, performer where you're just like, holy shit, I want to see anything that this person is in. And and there's just so few of those. Um, I, I, and, and I mean, obviously, you know, patriarchy and shittiness and whatever is part of the reason for that. But I also think that... Uh, I also just don't think that, you know, a lot of female writers, female directors were being given shots back then. It's why I think the Penelope Spheres of it all is also such an important thing. And it's so fucking disappointing to see that taken away from her because of ego and nonsense. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious as to what you guys sort of how you, you know, you both went to film school together, correct? Different years, but yeah, we were there at the same time. And sort of how, what, what was it like trying to sort of break in 
and sort of looking at the landscape of film in sort of the you know mid to late 90s I mean, to be fair, I'm not sure I would have gotten anywhere on my own. I think it, you know, I still remember, like, we had to go in front of the board at the DGA to lobby to get co-director credit, which they just did not give out back then. Really? Wow. And um, I can't... But the DGA seems like such a wonderful organization. I I find that shocking to hear. (laughs) They were so female-friendly at the time. Um, No, look, they've really gone, you know, there's obviously, it's a very different time now. But we were in a room full of men. You know, Walter Hill was there. I, I, I think Robert Wise. Robert Wise would have been there. Wow. Director of the and, editor of Citizen Kane. And we had to stand up there and speak of why we felt we should deserve this and what our history was together. And uh, I cannot remember the man's last name, but it was Elliot. And I'll, I'll figure it out at some point. But he looked at me and he said, she's so cute, I'd let her do anything. Like, that was my uh... pass, you know? And I dressed down as well. I had like a, I still remember I was wearing like a hoodie and was zipped all the way up and like big jeans and like boots and like the takeaway was like, I think she's adorable. Let her try. Jesus Christ. That's great. <laughs> Jeez. I, am, I mean, yeah. Sorry. I am imagining this like a Supreme Court hearing though. Like they're all on like a really <laughs> oh, no, high. It felt point. like it. I think yeah. was there. It definitely felt like it. And we also saw them brutally. I think it was maybe Adam Rifkin was, was he was trying to get them to allow him to put his credits at the end of the movie. And they had a rule at the time. And I think they still do where if there's any name at the front of the movie, like if a production company has a person's yeah. name in it, all the credits have to go at the front of the movie. It, the director the director credit has to stay up there and uh and they said no they're like no you can't do it you have to because he had this one or he wanted to preserve this one or without credits in front of it they were like no you have the credits have to be in the front if there's any name the director's name has to be there too we were like oh shit they're they're really hard um they're tough Uh, my my hoodie turned them around man but at the time you know like look you're talking early 90s when we broke in there right. were so many movies being made. Like, it seemed like everybody we knew was selling a screenplay. It was like, it, you know, the, the development money that they were buying scripts, they were buying spec scripts and developing movies. They developed like 10 movies for every one that they'd make and they were making hundreds. So it was just, right. it was so much, I'm not going to say it was like really easy, but it was so much easier than it is now to break in and sell something on the movie side, especially right. Um, because they were just they needed scripts they needed content so they didn't content. call it content back then back then it was a, the movies um, but was was can't hardly wait hard to get on its feet or are you saying no. it was uh, it, it was it was we got so that, lucky aside from that incident at the dga no it was uh... because what <laughs> happened was we we had we had done well uh, uh, as writers we were working on a bunch of different scripts and different movies that actually got made and we kind of felt like all right it's time for us to direct something we were a little frustrated. We'd gotten rewritten, rewritten a couple of times and said, you know, let's control the presses. Let's write something. So we wrote a script that we knew we could kind of, if we had to, we could shoot over a weekend at a house. Um, and then Scream came out right when we finished the script. And suddenly every studio wanted a teen movie. And we had one. And it was so cheap. I mean, it was under $10 million, right. really contained. And it was like, yeah, it was a no-brainer. Um, you know, they had Betty Thomas come on to produce, so she kind of backstopped us as first time directors, which was, which made it even easier to say like, we want to direct it. And yeah. And, and it, and it did feel like, it felt like everybody we knew was like, Oh, I'm directing a movie too. I've got a movie getting made. It was just, it really felt like that. And then that all came to a screeching halt. Yeah. It's, it, it's, I, it's pretty fascinating how, um, 
I remember seeing Can't Hardly Wait on a Date. I remember. Uh, it, I think it was a pretty big, like, high school date movie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and watching it again the other day, I was like, man, those the, the needle drops, just every single one of them took me, like, right back to 1998. Like, it was, it's pretty incredible to watch. Uh, the cast is incredible. Um, there's so many Six Feet Under cast members in that movie. It's unbelievable. I don't I, know why that is. And I don't know that Alan Paul was a huge Ken Hardaway fan or if it's the <laughs> casting director. I don't know. Really, like watching it's, Six Feet Under is like, oh, wow, there's somebody else from our yeah. movie. It's like how Christopher Nolan keeps using 10 things I hate about you people. And you're like, is he just like going through the list? Is he going to get to Alyssa Larissa Elena? Because I'm I'm here for it. Julia Stiles any day now, right? Yeah, it's got to happen. It's It's got to happen. happen. Um, It's crazy, yeah. I I had big Jennifer Love Hewitt and Can't Hardly Wait Energy in high school. And my wife had big uh, Lauren Ambrose. uh, (laughs) So I think there needs to be a legacy sequel where they're a couple. Like, let's just make that happen. I will say, though. Better than any of the sequel ideas we've been pitched to this time, I can tell you. Jennifer Love Hewitt's hair in that movie is thin else. Like her, her, it's, it's, she's also so petite that it just makes it look so much bigger on top of everything. But she's, she's really good. Everyone's good in that movie. There were, there that were was pieces. her, wasn't it? Yeah, there were pieces. But she, 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 she wanted, wanted that. that. We had to, like, that oh. was, a, you know, an expense that, like, we had to, like cough up for she wanted the pieces in the hair she felt very strongly that that prettiest girl in school just always had the greatest hair like so she was like i just want like this just beautiful big hair so yeah so we added to her and it was kind of a character character in its own it is it's yeah i was really kind of um blown away watching it again i have not watched it in a really long time i've obviously watched josie many times um but just because i think that josie is is fantastic but i i was josie harder to get made no <laughs> no i wish i could say it's a struggle but no i mean the truth is we passed on it twice you know the mm-hmm. universal came to us with this idea and said you know what do you think of this we were like oh that sounds terrible like with josie <laughs> pussy gets what, what what and then right. and it wasn't until we realized like oh wait a minute they they're going to let us make a studio musical. Like this is, this could be a musical. They're going to let us make an actual musical at a a studio. And then we started seriously considering it. And then, you know, we turned it actually, I think the original thing we pitched may have had an outer space element. Um, And then we were like, that's that's terrible. That's crazy. Uh, And then we went back with what we did and yeah, they they kind of were excited about it. And can you please make a sequel to Josie in space? I mean, I think you could get all the players back. Yeah. Listen, uh, Deb Space we, we, does not seem like she wants to be doing No, I was thinking, like, I don't even think, I think the rights are so tangled oh, up yeah, yeah, right yeah, now yeah. because I'm of what sure. happened with Riverdale that, like, it, I don't even think you could. Listen, if you make Josie and the Pussycats in space and, like, Jennifer Love Hewitt and Lauren Ambrose are there and they're a lesbian <laughs> couple, that sounds great. Yeah, can you bring these two universes together? It seems pretty obvious at this point. The Can't Hardly Pussycats universe. <laughs> It is, I mean, listen, you I might be able to just, I think you just might want to get a cameo with the two of them together. And that might satisfy <laughs> That might be easier at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a really special movie. And I do think that um, Wayne's World feels like it broke a lot of ground to kind of let a lot of these comedies happen. Um, did you guys, I mean, at the end of this film, they do this kind of, 
scooby-doo kind of multiple endings they they give us like a super sad ending where you have this amazing shot of wayne carrying garth out of the ashes of the house that's like gone with the wind that's just incredible um after an electrical fire starts and he loses cassandra and it all goes to shit uh then you have the scooby-doo ending we mentioned where they rip off the face and it's mr withers um old man withers that is uh and then the mega happy ending is cassandra gets a record contract rekindles a relationship with wayne garth begins a relationship with the waitress he's fantasized over and benjamin is reformed and learns that money and good looks are not necessarily what bring you happiness um but then you also have like post-credit stuff and i i'm trying to remember and i don't know if you know this emily i'm i do what what was the first movie to do post-credits i know ferris has a has a bit at the very end um Um. I'm, I'm sure just I'm sure it predates Ferris, but like, yeah, it it, must, it's, right? it's yeah, you know, it's, it feels like yeah. an 80s thing. Ferris feels like the first thing that people really notice. I'm going to Google this right now. Okay, That's my job Ferris. on this podcast is Googling things. You're very good at it. But I, I, I Ferris is the just... one I remember. Ferris is the one that I remember the most right. that landed with, with me the most. Yeah, Because well, him just being like, it's over. Go yeah, home. Why are great. you still here? It was oh. one of those towels. Nobody's done that before. Yeah. Fortunately. Yeah. There is a Wikipedia page about this, Phil. Uh, <laughs> post-credit scenes may have their origin in encores, an additional performance added oh, to the end okay. of stage shows in response okay. to audience applause. Opera encores were common practice. The first general release film to feature a post-credit scene is The Silencers, released in March 1966. The scene depicts the lead character, Matt Helm, played by Dean Martin, lying shirtless on what appears to be a rotating sofa along with 10 scantily clad women. He kisses two women before rubbing his face and muttering, Oh my God. <laughs> During By the, the scene, way, <laughs> during the scene, text overlays read coming up next, and Matt Helm meets Lovey craves it. Um, actually, actually, this is uh, one I this is the one I remember. Uh, the okay. Muppet movie has a big okay. post credit. It's not a big one, but it has a post credit scene. Sure. That's that's the one that I always think. I of want someone movies. to reenact the Dean Martin one at some point, like a Marvel movie. Just does that. Just you can put that in Josie and the Pussycats in space. Like that. Yeah. Lauren Ambrose and Jennifer Lafayette will be on that sofa. <laughs> yeah, go. exactly. Perfect. Perfect. I I'll just say this though. Um, in terms of the end of this movie, as we're wrapping this up, I do think that like. The multiple ending thing, they wrap the movie up quite quickly, but it is satisfying and it is kind of meta and it does feel as though it's kind of acknowledging um, everything that came before it. It's also satisfying. It also feels like there's no sequel really to be had here. Like, I know why they did it. I get why they did it. And it's not a terrible movie by any means, but I remember very little of it. I remember Wayne Stock and Aerosmith and a Jurassic Park joke. and, and oh, So they got Aerosmith for the sequel. Because yeah. that's what you read that Aerosmith turned down. That's why they have they Alice got a Cooper. Physical. They paid them more, probably. Is my Interesting. Guess, but... Or they realized it was a big or hit. Or they realized it was a hit. Yeah, I mean, the Alice Cooper thing in this is great. I also read that Alice Cooper only thought he was going to have, like, a cameo. Didn't realize he was going to have, like, a monologue about indigenous people. And then... <laughs> On the day, they gave him the monologue, and he just learned it on the day, and wow. just did it then there. No cards, just no cards. Just, it? just did it. That's what. That's. that's I mean, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, he gives a whole speech about got Milwaukee. I'll, uh, I that is my that is my favorite. But I keep saying things are my favorite. That's my yeah. favorite. I love it's a that great scene. I just remember thinking that was so funny when I was <laughs> however old I was when I first saw this. I was just like, yeah, that's so that's that's good. That you know, that's good. Um, yeah, and I, the Chris Farley thing, the Chris Farley uh, bit. Chris Farley I was Farley. just like, 
Yeah, especially when they call back to it and they're like, good thing yeah. that that guy knew all this oddly specific information. This is self-evidently yeah. one of the greatest films ever made. Like, let's it, just admit it. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's, I just feel like, and listen, there's obviously jokes that don't uh, age well, not jokes in particular, where you're just like, I guess this was a thing. At a moment, I do but... wonder, like, is was not ever meant to be actually funny or was it meant to be like, you know, ironically funny. Was it I remember like, when they, because yeah. I think they, you know, a lot of these things were from the sketch. You know, I feel like some of the right, things right. they had to like, we got to do that with like the, the hooked in, you know, it was all in the sketch. So they had to get those in the movie and not, I think was from the sketch. And I think it played. I still don't get the fish thing. Can someone explain to me? It was the thing or? where it was like when they tricked somebody. You, you they tricked oh, somebody. And it was like, ah, up. we got you. Yeah, fished in, hooked, whatever. That that oh was my. the sketch. And then they they literally they kind of that's the last the joke end. in this yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had to wait for the end to fit it in. So, I think it, I think it played people. They, they had to play the hits. I guess. Yes. Phil, you know what a fish is, right? And like how uh, yes, sometimes people is. catch fish and then eat. Sure. Them. Yeah. Did, great. Yeah. But that's okay. <laughs> but that's a joke yeah fish exist it's funny sure uh yeah i mean I, some of the stuff works better most of it works better than the fish joke but i but it's all to say that like watching it again i was surprised by um how well it worked like i i was worried when i hit play that i was like okay so i'm really gonna watch this movie and is it gonna hold up and i think that it really did like i i i think it's got a, a pretty big heart i think that it's it's you know it's not cynical I think that so many comedies now are pretty jaded and cynical. And I think that this movie feels just really um, lovely in a weird way. I, I just, which I was kind of not expecting. Um, and I think part of it is, you know, uh, the Wayne and Garth relationship is obviously kind of the beating heart of the movie. I do think though, I, in the research I did, apparently Mike Myers, the first note he gave to Dana Carvey before they did the sketch was, um, uh, hold on, I, I, I want to quote him. Uh, accurately so that I don't uh, so I don't uh, quote it improperly but basically he said to him that all uh, Garth cares about is that he thinks that Wayne is the coolest person in the world oh uh, I just told Carvey that Garth is the guy who really worships Wayne and that's his main thing talk about subtext it comes through comes through in this movie (laughs) you can tell no I I'm I like realize how much of my delivery is like hi everybody I'm Garth what's up like, I, <laughs> there's a like, little bit of Garth in you yeah there is. It's, yeah. Uh, I just somehow my teenage brain just like that trickled there's, in <laughs> he's just there's even like when um after you met you guys mentioned earlier the the Ed O'Neill moment right and Wayne says the only person who talks to the camera is me or Garth and the camera turns to Garth and he's like I don't have anything to say what's that and then you hear him go like he's like he's yeah. crying as he's running away from the camera there's just something really adorable about garth he's great um well, also he's, he's, yes. he's all the part of us who's i'm also here <laughs> right and, and also like that could feel like a sidekick right like that could feel very kind of like i'm an appendage to wayne but i think it's a testament to dana carvey that they do feel like they're on even footing like i never feel as though garth is you know the it's more like the Abbot to his Costello, if that makes sense. Like they do feel like they are a pair, um, which I think. And that is... scene on the car does, uh, to me, that was kind of the most effective 
scene, the, 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 the laugh that they do, the laugh that Mike Myers does and that they okay. share seems so, it's so weird that that was the last scene that they hated each other. It's so <laughs> genuine. Like in a movie where it's like they're breaking the fourth wall and it's bit mm-hmm. after bit, it felt is so... Is that the Bugs Yeah. yeah the but do you, know, do you know why that is though? Why? Is um, Dana told a joke. This It was B-roll. He told a joke that got that got Mike Myers laughing. Yeah. So the laugh was yeah. so pure that they then inserted the Bugs Bunny joke, which it I mean, so well, it works really well because I mean, it does. I don't know. I don't. The, the whole Bugs Bunny when he dresses up like a girl thing. Well, is that a different character? Because I know that there was like a girl. Emily, I, I wonder if you know the answer. Oh, no, there is a, you're talking about Lola. Bunny. I'm talking oh, about Lola. Bugs yeah, sorry, Bunny yeah. often would Bugs Bunny dress up drag, as a yeah. lady yeah, bunny. Yeah. To fool Elmer Fudd. Yeah. Okay. You had Looney Tunes in Canada, right, Phil? You, you, yes, you... Emily, I just don't know it as well as maybe okay. I should. All I'm right. sorry. It's confusing because they call them money loonies. So well, because then like, in yeah. Space Jam, there's Lola, right? Like, there's an actual female. Yeah, but she's, she's new for Space, Bun- Space Jam. Like, she was invented okay. for that. I just wasn't sure and, if that no, was No, like... and Bugs, uh, Bugs, yeah, Bugs with Dress and Drag. That's the thing about Bugs is he's a he's a gender-fluid icon. Um, when I, mean, I did a, best. I'm not a, I did a thing a few years ago where I would talk with my former editor's, uh, like, child about different movies. I was the critic at large. We called her the critic at small. And she <laughs> thought Bugs Bunny was a girl because Bugs Bunny dressed up in drag so often. And I was like, yes, yes, Bugs Bunny, now she, her. We gotta gotta respect I that. I mean, I and I don't say this with. Uh, I I guess I. Do you feel as though Bugs gives off a gender? No, he's. I yeah. I think the reason that it works is because Bugs is just like he exists outside of gender. You he's know, whatever we, he wants to be. Yeah, we use uh, yeah, he him yeah. pronouns for him because you know, of course. But like he's he yeah. just like. Yeah, uh, unlike a lot of cartoon characters, he seems to exist outside of all societal expectations, which is what's so fun about him. And uh, you know, he's a stinker. He has no pants on. I see. There's no genitalia. You know, Mickey has pants. That's clearly that's true. Covering up Mickey's, you know, yeah. Mickey sued by Disney. By I don't think I don't think that uh, Iger listens to this podcast. I think we're okay. But but if he does, I got some words for him. Iger, if you're listening. Back to the fucking negotiation table, please. Um, but listen, I, I think that this I think this movie held up incredibly well. Um, at the end of our podcast, we do a rating. So I'm curious, uh, zero to ninety nine. Oh, oh, can before we do that, can I read please? the list of the nine episode Absolutely. titles of the Low Files, the show yes. where Rob Lowe and his sons chased <laughs> ghosts? Absolutely. These are the Absolutely. nine. This was canceled. It aired in 2017. It was canceled. The nine episode titles are Haunted Boys Reformatory, <laughs> The Secret Underwater Base. Bigfoot, Alien Abduction, Fear, those are pretty normal titles. Yeah. America's Secret Space Program, Mind Games, The Wood Apes. <laughs> and it's all about the journey. The Lows reflect on their journey over the past eight weeks. The season finale of The Low Files is just like a clip show. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did you see all of them, though, Emily? No, I think I watched the first. Like, they came okay. to TCA. And so I watched the first did. one to just like be able to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is kind this is kind of fun, but also I don't know why this exists. And like sure. I it appears you can't he have watch a new it show anymore. with his son, a Netflix show with one of yes, his sons. That was a scripted show. That was scripted, right? Sons. Yeah. I, mean, I, I guess I, I appreciate that he wants to keep working with his kids. And no matter That's how something. good that show might have been, you gotta earn a clip show. You can't have a clip show after seven episodes. 
listen, I think we should all watch the low files and do a podcast about the low files. I I'm waiting for a, for a Can I just wait for the clip show? show? Can I just watch the highlights <laughs> yeah. show? And then not have to... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's something. Um, so basically what we do at the end of this podcast is we rate the films from zero to 99, zero being the lowest, obviously 99 being the highest. Uh, we rate it from when we saw it originally and now what we think of it. So I'll go first in 92. I mean, I adored this movie. I give it a 95. Like I, I, this movie just ripped for me as a kid. It still really holds up. I went down a little bit. I went to 92, but I think this movie, I mean, and that's basically just cause there's some jokes that just didn't land for me this time around as I'm a little older, but I, I just, I adore this film. Uh, Emily, where, where are you on the, on the, on the scale? I mean, when I first saw this, I was, I, again, I only gave things zero or 99 as a kid. Sure, uh, sure. I, I gave this a 99 easily. When mm-hmm. I first saw it, I will probably of the movies we've, we've talked about on this show outside of Aladdin. I think this is the one I saw the most growing up. Um, now, you know, as I said, it's self-evidently one of the greatest films ever made. So I got to go like 87, you know, <laughs> um, did, where does it fall on the, uh, queer phobic scale? Oh, I haven't done that in a few episodes. Have yeah. I? Hmm. You uh, didn't do that for sister act. So if you want to retroactively a, remember, there's the whole uh, anal cavity search gag. Yeah. <laughs> that's is. the thing is this movie is constantly doing jokes that should be more queer phobic than they are. Yes. Like the, I, I, like the, I love you. I love you, man. Joke right. yeah. seems yeah. like it's going to be a joke about gay stuff, but then at the end, but it like seems some... like wholehearted, doesn't it? Yeah, at the end, some guys like, and I've learned that you can have express two men can express platonic, and I'm just like, they veered away from the thing that would have been. So I got to give it like a three. Like there is yeah. stuff that you're always like on edge, but it never. You know, I mean, yeah. the anal cavity joke is another one where you're like, oh, that, sh- that could be so much worse. It's literally just about, yeah, yeah. probably that would suck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm giving it a three. And Sister Act, uh, I'm also giving a three because some of the nuns should have been lesbians. It just should have happened. I mean, I, I think some of them were, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, but that's just what it is. Uh, okay, so Harry, where, where does this fall for you? I think at the time, I think at the time, I mean, it's hard to remember. I remember really loving the sketch and I think I really loved the movie. I'm going to give, I'm going to say like maybe a 92 in 92. Yep. Now it was hard to, I was so distracted by the fact, again, it was the, all of the, the knots and the, it just didn't play as well. Now it kind of has been spoiled by time. I'm going to give it a now. 75 74 oh, okay, okay it definitely dropped since then okay. for me what about you deb i'm gonna complete opposite mm. i'm gonna say when i saw it the first time it smacked of like bro culture to me it did oh, not i felt a little bit like this movie was not for me interesting. Uh, so i think then i would have said around 80 85 mm-hmm. but now speaking about it and really <laughs> talking about like you know, I mean, I think there's a, you know, the contributions it made to comedy, clearly, like, we drew from it, even if we didn't know we were drawing from it. Um, I'm going to take it back up to a 94. Love it. Love it. Um, I can't thank you guys enough for doing this, truly. I know that, like, I, I was, it's just such a thrill having watched recently and talked about showing the Pussycats for over two hours. <laughs> uh, it's such a thrill to be able to talk with you guys about this movie. And, and I just thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye, Bye guys. Bye.
Thank you.